This is WORAM and FM, your RKO general station in New York. Clark Gable courts death as the king of daredevil drivers to please a lady by the name of Barbara Stanwyck. See To Please a Lady, Wednesday night at 9 on the big preview on Channel 9. It makes you feel real good, real warm down inside to know that everything is not dead. That somewhere, someplace, not only is the crowd some on some far-off hill weeping because Casey is up there swinging. Uh, yeah, he's up there. And uh, it's not oh, the band is playing somewhere, the birds are singing. Kelly R. Darnell was sentenced to three years in prison in Johnson City, Tennessee last week. <laughs> last week for stealing from large churches and giving the loot to small churches. <laughs> Hold it there. That's enough. That's enough, you guys. <laughs> well, I, I, there you have the typical attitude of the enlisted man towards the world. Sure. There's, a, there's an enlisted man of life. You know that. There's, there's a, there is the T5 of existence. Uh, things are moving along. I, here it's the Thursday. Of course, of course. Some people were born with a PFC stripe sewed right out of their eternal service record. Is your, is your history a service record? <laughs> it's just a passing thought here. It just, it just doesn't occur to me. I'm sorry. Uh, it's Thursday, you know. We're not going to be on the air tomorrow night. And there's, I don't know, there's a, some kind of a, a soccer match or something that's coming on. What is that thing that's coming on tomorrow night? On WOR, some kind of a rugger match, something. It's a some some uh, muscular athletic contest where where large chowder heads will push large cabbage heads around. 
for four and a half hours to the insane screaming of more knuckleheads than is usually gathered together on a quiet August night. And we'll be there. We'll bring you every thrilling, exciting moment. And now, once again, as a WOR public service, it's Chucky. Mr. Chucky's returned with wonderful, exciting fashion news brought to you every week at the same time. Oh, my God, I'm glad to be back. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, it's so exciting being back in the city. Such a terrible traffic jam coming all the way in from the island. I had to fly. Oh, good evening, girls. It's Chucky again, and I'm so delighted to be here with you. And tonight we were coming in with just bursting with excitement and wonderful good tidings for the forthcoming fashion year. Oh, my God. It's going to be a fantastic year in fashion. One of the most exciting years coming. I was just sitting the other day talking to Dickie out on the patio on the island. I said, Dickie, my God, I've just got to get in and tell them all about it. Have you seen Mademoiselle magazine? They have a whole wonderful fall issue about little boy fashions, girls. If for years you wanted to be a little boy, now's your chance. This season, little girls are going to be little boys. They have wonderful itsy-bitsy little T-shirts. They have wonderful little pants that zip in all the right places, girls. Those places that you've always wanted them to zip. And they do now. Yes, it's little girls this year wearing little boy fashions. And I'd like to suggest you get a copy of Mademoiselle magazines. Oh, it's a fine. Oh, wonderful. You know, I'm so excited because there's so many wonderful things just to pop over the horizon, and I can hardly wait. I'm just bursting to have them come out. For example, in this week's New York Times, Wednesday, July 31st, just a little less than a week ago, there was a wonderful play, Yves Saint Laurent, Top Styles, photographed at a hit showing I know Eve very well. A wonderful, darling boy, Yves Saint Laurent, and he's come out with the new Robin Hood fashions, girls. Little panties and, and uh, little Robin Hood hats for you. And I'm going to read the caption of this delightful photograph. Weekend costume has mid-thigh boots worn over tight pants, girls. Hair seal pullover has knitted sleeves. Robin Hood hat and chain complete the Robin Hood look. Another little boy fashion for all of you girls out there who for years have wanted to... Well, oh, incidentally, I hear a few little straws in the wind that for the little boys there will be this coming season more and more, oh, joy, little girl fashions. So uh, things are coming. And, and uh, for those of you who enjoy looking around for those darling little directorial and those decorative touches that one can make one's little home so wonderful with, for those of you particularly who enjoy Americana... I have from the current issue of House Beautiful magazine, Americana has invaded the bathroom. And isn't it decorative? I'm reading to you directly from the copy. Hand-rubbed, pine-finished seat is made of molded wood that's seamless, jointless, wipes clean, won't crack, chip, peel, or warp. A brass eagle, girls, adorns that wonderful hand-polished lid. A brass eagle. What was it they used to say, Eddie, about... 
play, payday. What was it that the eagle did on payday? Right, George, things are coming around. And I, I, I'm telling you, things are so exciting these days. And Time magazine, and also I would like to also recommend reading very carefully Times, the wonderful Times paper, because they have so many good things, little, little between columns there about the way things are happening in our world. For example, girls, here's a headline that I found most exciting, and I want one that I want to report to you right now. A man's tailor will cut to suit woman's taste. Yes, a gentleman tailor, and in fact all gentleman tailors, have long had a devoted female following, but it's never been talked about. Symbols of the sacrosanct in masculine attire, such as Brooks Brother, J. Press, or Chip Incorporated, have been slipping their feminine fashions in on the side for many years. If women continue to make their influence felt, it may only be a matter of time before all of the major men's tailors will be making ladies' suits, too, exactly the same as the men's suits. So things are moving right along, and I've got to get back to the island now. This has been Mr. Chucky, bringing you our special WOR public service prognostications and forecasts in the world of fashion. Oh, it's so exciting. I, I, I was just talking to Dickie the other day. My God, this is going to be the greatest year we've ever had. Just the greatest year. Goodbye, see you, goodbye. And we'll be back next week. Have a good time. And I'll see all of you out on the island, out on the beach. Goodbye, goodbye. That's very habit-forming. <laughs> tell you, it's terrible how they can get you caught. Yes, my God. Well, uh, <laughs> it is a very exciting season. Have you noticed how exciting everything is these days? I'm really, I'm just on pins and needles. You know, uh, speaking, uh, as long as we're on pins and needles, uh, you're aware, of course, that uh, that the demonstration is just the demonstration as a way of life is spreading all over the world. It's uh, just not here in the United States. They're demonstrating everywhere now. And uh, I noticed uh, a couple of uh, days ago on one of the newscasts, somebody mentioned now that there have been various demonstrator schools opened up. Have you heard about them where they teach people how to, you know, how to, how to chant in unison, uh, where people are taught how to have spontaneous weeping fits, you know? And how to how to go down on your knees properly so that you have the proper stuff. The whole thing is very very interesting, and uh, and uh, they, uh, especially for the little kids, I, I kind of like that kind of teaching. Well, well, nevertheless, uh, it's it's going it's spreading all over, and uh, we have here a note uh, from the English type of demonstration. Now, there's uh, the English type of demonstration, as you know, takes various forms. It's very different. I think the demonstration is different in every country, just like uh, baked beans are different in every country. And uh, footwear is different in every country, and football rules are different in every country. It's just, uh, so it is with the demonstration. And um, uh, as you uh, have, you've been listening to the news that recently there's been a lot of demonstrations in England about uh, the visit of one of the uh, one of the hierarchies, upper people in the Greek hierarchy has been coming. There's been a lot of hollering and yelling, people hitting each other, and bowler hats are getting knocked off, one thing or another. And we have a special report tonight from England. I Special report, a salute to Englishmen everywhere and the English spirit. You 
them from the hedgerows. We'll fight them with other beaches. We'll fight them with blood, sweat, and tears. My God, they'll always be an Tonight, we salute a colonel. A colonel who used to command a squadron of tanks stormed into the headquarters of the Committee of 100 yesterday in Finsbury Park, London. Lieutenant Colonel Alan Brown, M.C., told the committee's secretary, Mr. Peter Moore, if you don't call off these disgusting, shocking demonstrations at once, I shall punch you on the nose, sir. How dare your demonstrators boo our queen? If you don't offer to stop demonstrating, I now challenge you to fisticuffs. Mr. Moore replied, I am not opposed to violence. I do not accept your challenge. I do not believe in violence. Colonel Brown of Goldsmith Avenue, Carborough of Sussex, retorted, If you are prepared to support such rotten demonstrations, you must expect trouble. Mr. Moore said that the committee hoped to consider the question of further demonstrations now that there was news of political prisoners being freed in Greece. But Colonel Brown said he might return to Mr. Moore's office today to challenge him to a duel. And so tonight's Englishman, Colonel Alan Brown, M.C., there'll always be an England by God. Again, the BBC has completed another salute to Englishmen and England spirit, whatever it is. The third programming service requests the pleasure of your company next week at the same time at 1,350 hours on the third programming service of the BBC. And stay tuned for the British Broadcasting Corporation's Haydn Quartet, which follows in just a few moments. exciting, isn't it? I mean, you know, just being around, you know, digging the scene. It really is, you know. Just, you know, digging the scene. Uh, oh, yes, there's many. I wish I had my gothic music. I don't have my gothic music here, do I? Oh, the scene is getting getting uh, more and more interesting. Uh, speaking of, of gothic relics, this is W-O-R-A-M and F-M, New York, he, and uh, we'll be here until midnight, and we have, among other things, uh, Mandarin House. And tonight I went down to Mandarin House. I was amazed. Emily Quo likes my beard. I report, <laughs> even though I don't, my beard that makes me very embarrassed. But but Emily digs it. And I took a writer friend of mine, a simple Southern boy, uh, down to the Mandarin House on 13th Street, and he was brought up in the Southern tradition of Chinese cooking, where when you sit down in the Chinese restaurant, which is called a chop suey joint. They bring you four large slices of American bread right out of the waxed paper, sandwich-style cut. And you sit there and you wait for your chow mein to arrive, Chicago-style, with French fries. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the way. Well, he was, he was out of his skull. He could not believe that, that, that Oriental food could be this way. And if you have never tried Mandarin food, please, this is the Mandarin house on 13th Street between 6th and 7th in the village right in the heart of the fist-fighting district. 
And yes, that's all right, honey. Don't worry about it. And they have a magnificent little garden in the back. And if you like to eat out in the back there in the garden with the dragon looking down and the wind blowing through and the chicks moving around, there is nothing like a Chinese waitress, believe me, to make things hum. Oh, boy. I don't know where they get them, but uh, I'm just telling you the truth. It's insane. Uh, it makes all those people in, in Playboy magazine look somehow like underfed brownies. Oh, yes, it's an interesting situation. But the food is fantastic. It's the Mandarin house between between 6th and 7th on 13th, and they have a bar. Okay, that's for those of you who are nervous. They're also open on the weekend. <laughs> and uh, while we're on the subject of the village, we have here the paper book gallery. Hey, listen, if you're interested in funny-type books, if, you're, if you really are interested in humor, and few people are, Unfortunately, there's, there's a darn little humor being written today that's worth the paper that it's written on. I would like to recommend, if you go down to the paper book gallery, pick up a copy of a little underground book, which absolutely gassed me about a year ago or less when I read it. So much so that, uh, that uh, it's, it's a very interesting kind of humor, a, uh, a pure American style of humor. The name of the book is Southern Fried by Bill Fox. Pick it up uh, at the gallery down at the Paper Book Gallery. It's a hard book to find in this town because it's out of print, I believe. It's, it's, uh, it's Southern Fried, the Paper Book Gallery, and they're on 6th Avenue at, uh, at 8th Street, just off, just next to the uh, Howard Johnson there. And they're open late. They're open until 2 o'clock in the morning. And if, if uh, you're coming into New York and you would like to experience a, a quality of New York life, I would suggest you try the Paper Book Gallery. Somebody wrote to me very indignantly, uh, not believing that there is a particular thing in the air uh, in uh, Greenwich Village bookshops. Well, uh, he, and he, wrote from, he had the guts to write from Allentown and say that whatever they've got in, the, in, in New York in the village, they got in Allentown. Oh, yeah. You should. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he says, uh, oh, yeah. And, I'm, and this has nothing to do, I'm not saying anything bad about Allentown here. I'm just trying to tell you that, that the village is a specific social phenomenon in America that I have never seen even remotely uh, uh, repeated anywhere in the country. And I've lived in several places in the country, and that has nothing to do with wearing chinos and beards either, if that's what you think, or carrying paper books around in your back pocket. Nothing at all to do with that. In fact, you know, I'll tell you, one time I was in Chicago, Ed, about a year ago. Just don't, don't, let, let them handle it. I'll take it down. About a year ago, and... Uh, uh, every every city in in the country now has its own little island of people who are trying to make it like the village scene. You know, they all read the Village Voice wherever it might be, and uh, they've heard about it. And it's it's you know that that very funny feeling that you get when you watch an English movie and they're trying to portray Americans. There's a certain cheapness and. Uh, it's just not a good copy. You know, it's a bad copy. Uh, nothing is worse than a bad copy of something that you know about. Very good. It's a, you know, well, I, I went into Chicago and I'm hanging around Rush Street. Now, Rush Street is the area all over oh, that whole near north side, uh, right off the water tower there, is the area where they're trying to make it like the village scene. Very hard, you know. And you have a feeling that it, you know what you have a feeling? It's beatnik night at the Rotary Club. <laughs> it's a very strange feeling. So, so uh, I, I I go into this joint, and and there they're all they're all sitting around there and very self consciously making the scene, and I walk in, and I take one look and I want to stand up and holler, "All right, I'm from the home office." 
<laughs> I'm here from McDougal Street. The, the home office has arrived to square it up. Well, uh, it, it is that is that way. Now, I'm not trying to say that, that uh, <laughs> I'm not putting any city down. I'm just trying to point out to you, though, that the thing that is down there, and this, this, this the whole village thing, is a very specific social phenomenon that has to do with being here in New York. You cannot be in New York in Allentown. That's part of it. New York has a quality of anonymity that, that very few cities can ever even remotely approach, which gives a whole new set of rules and regulations that either you, you don't have to look after or you can look after. So it's a, it's a very specific kind of thing. Uh, I've been out on the coast. I have seen the, uh, the would-be Bohemian area and those, but they do have something, but it's different from what we have. And if, if I'm, I'm I'm sitting here telling you about the village scene, I said if you if you want to if you want to taste a little bit of it, there are certain things certain places where you can, but you have to. But very you can't really. You know, how can I tell you this? You can't really. You have to. You have to spend say about a week in uh, coming in every night into the paper book gallery, for example, spending an hour or two there to realize the difference between that and Max Drugstore, where they got paper books in Allentown. <laughs> I mean, it really. Don't be confused by the fact that they've got the same covers on the racks there. It's a lot of things happen there. Uh, this is a quality to it there. And uh, if you if you think, wow, you know, you always hear that. Uh, there'll be some clown sitting down someplace, and he'll be in the middle of a place like uh, the Manzini, see, uh, or or uh, or the Finjan, or someplace like like the Figaro. Now, now, when when the Rotary Club arrives there. They look around and they're a little disappointed because the walls are walls, you know, and the seats are seats, and and the cups have coffee in them and everything else. And pretty soon you'll hear this clown saying, "Oh, for crying out loud! You can coffee, you can get, I can get coffee better than this back in Reading. What's so bare of coffee shop? Huh? Beatnik, I'm a girl beer. Well, of course, uh, the the thing the, the thing is there that he's he's totally missing the point, and probably uh, it would take him a, another year and a half sitting down there festering to even begin to realize there is one. Uh, some guys have lived down on McDougal Street as visiting tourists for nine years and haven't gotten the point yet. In spite of the fact they've grown three-foot beards and they wear Mexican sandals and they cut their pants off above the knee, <laughs> it still hasn't. You know, they're still walking around. So, so uh, it's it's hard to. It's uh, what I'm putting here into words is uh, not easily put into words. Uh, not easy to put it into words. You you either feel it or you don't. And uh, nothing is worse than the convert. Uh, yeah, so speaking of, of, of the business of the convert, uh, it's a funny thing. Uh, I, I've been debating about telling this story, but I think I might as well tell it now. I think uh, the time has come now. Uh, we're, we're living in this, in this world. And, and I, keep getting, I keep getting a little pieces of, you know, people will write editorials. And it's about the race situation, you see. They write editorials, and they keep, they keep saying, put yourself in their place. Put yourself in their place. You know, how many times have you heard that? And people believe they are, and some very right-meaning people think they can. Well, I, I want to I tell you a little story about how I learned about this problem and the impossibility of putting yourself in anybody's place, how it can never, ever be done because of the subtlety of the rules that surround every place, and places in cap letters, that those who put themselves imaginarily into the other place can never possibly comprehend. 
and it has to do with the army, where you learn a great deal of things about life, because the army is a very raw place. Everything is right there out in the open, you know. Uh, when a guy stands up in front of you and he's got stripes in the eyes, shut up! <laughs> you learn, you know, you shut up. <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, when, when everybody's wearing Brooks Brothers coats and somebody hollers, shut up! You're liable to give them a fist fight, you know. Well, uh, it's only later that you learn that you should have shut up. But in the army, you shut up ahead of the game. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm in the army, you see, and it's funny how some guys, and I wasn't being facetious, some guys think about the world as an oyster that is about to be opened by them. Uh, they really do. Uh, and that's a particular New York phenomenon, young kids who grow up in New York. Not guys who come to New York, but kids who grow up in New York. The Moss Heart Syndrome. Uh, showbiz is to be made, you know. <laughs> uh, money is a thing you get. Uh, and it's a, it's a kind of make-it world, a whole thing. Now, they're born with that. These guys are born officers. They're, they're born to do it. And uh, there are other guys who don't know it. Uh, they don't know this. They, they don't, when they look at a movie, they're living out in Ashtabula, you see, and they're looking at a movie, and a movie is a thing that they go to and they pay a dollar to see, but it would never, ever occur to them to make one or to go someplace and get in them, anything <laughs> like that. You know, it's just a thing they see. So you know what I'm talking about, Ed? Uh, and it's, they, these are born enlisted men. So I, I happen to have, by trick of nature, no one knows how this happens because a born lieutenant colonel can be born right into a family of EM. Absolutely. Right in the middle of it all. No one knows about this. It has very little to do with family background. I'm, I'm convinced it has nothing to do with the, with the money that the family has. It has to do with a lot of other things, maybe some kind of a secret gene nobody has quite isolated yet. But on the other hand, a, a, an EM can be born right in the middle of a family of psychological colonels. Yes, he's known as the black sheep then, you know, <laughs> they don't know what, what to do with this clown, and everybody tries to make him square up, and, uh, you know, his, the eagles that they give him for his shoulders keep falling off and getting rusty, he loses them in crap games, <laughs> and, they, and they don't know what's the matter with him, you see, and everybody else is walking real straight in the family and making more dough and making the scene, and they got boats off Hyannisport and all that, and this guy, he's, you know, it's raining on him all the time, they, what's the will you straighten up, Reginald, you know, <laughs> he's sitting down there slumping, and he usually finally slides into his own area. Well, I'm a kid, and I and I I don't know about this. All I know is when the army comes, you go into it. You know, I don't know about making it and picking the big deal and all this stuff. I don't know about these things. So I'm I'm in high school and I'm just about ready to get out. And they came around, and of course I had an amateur radio license. So there had been a lot of talk in the, the various ham magazines about how they were looking for hams. You know, all that stuff. And uh, if you were a ham and you giant up, oh, they'd be great. And you get in the signal corps. Just, uh, you know, it's a big thing. So I signed up. Well, six weeks later, there I am. Uh, I'm, 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 uh, I'm hip deep in the mud. And, <laughs> and I found out again, you know, that, that little did I realize that I had signed up for, truly, it was like I had thrown myself right under the juggernaut. I had signed up for the untouchable class. Now, other guys are put in there. Other guys are born there. I had signed up for it. The, uh, there was a, which was natural because, you know, coming from Hammond, Indiana, the mill town, that's an untouchable place in the first place. So it was only natural. I didn't think anything of it. So I'm slogging through the stuff and stringing the wires and sweating and hollering. Sixteen weeks of basic through the mud, and we're living on salt pork for months on end, you know. And I am a P-R-I-V, a private, private, nothing. 
I, and I mean truly a private. And there is nothing more private than a private in the Signal Corps. Uh, infantry privates, they always have movies about Van Johnson leading them, you know, up the, up the hill there to take the pillbox. Air Corps, oh, forget it. I mean, you know, Air Corps is like the movies, you know. The, the guy, to the guys in the Signal Corps, Ed, the Air Corps was like somebody, uh, like some little guy looks at the movies, you know. It's something you just hear about. It's just a, one of those things way off in the distance. The, the, the Signal Corps was one of those units, was one of those outfits that didn't even have its own identification. The minute you were assigned to something, you were just attached to it. That's how they were, like a human barnacle. Did you know that? There's no such thing as a Signal Corps outfit. No, of course not. There's an infantry out there that'll attach a signal company to it. Uh, you're you're perennially perennially frozen in grade. You just get no rank, nothing. It's just it's just like the guy who's the janitor in this big building. You don't know anything about him. You don't care as long as the elevators work. You see, and he keeps out of your way. Well, that's that's what the signal corps roughly is. Well, there I am slogging away, and now now come on everybody here. Just, just give me moments here. So I have accepted this way of life. Remember that. Now the way of life is this kind. Of, the, the rules that govern an enlisted man are so subtle and so varied, just like the rules that govern those other people that we think that we can become part and put ourselves in their place. So subtle that you don't even know they exist, even when you are a private. You don't know it. You you reach a point where you have accepted the premise in your mind that there is never any choice of anything. So you do not say to yourself, I'm going to town tonight. That's reserved for officers. <laughs> they say they're going. You say to yourself once in a while, I'll go down and see if they'll give me a pass. Maybe they'll let me go to town tonight. It's a very different thing. Well, you accept all these things. And so uh, I, I am working. I'm working in the Signal Corps, and I, I remember about two days before I got shipped, they put me on a stint of KP, Dad, that even at this point my knees hurt when I think about it. I was put on KP in a consolidated mess. Now, this is a mess that runs around the clock. These guys eat 24 hours a day. Every five minutes, 16,000 PFCs come in yelling. Well, now, that means that there's no goofing off between meals. There is just one continual meal. I am assigned to pots and pans. That means <laughs> I have had, I'm now in the seventh circle of the inner circle of Dante's Inferno. I have two gigantic tubs of scalding, scalding hot water. I have nine pounds of GI soap, which is composed of 70% lye and 19% sodium ash acid, and the other 4% of some kind of a caustic substance that curls your fingernails back. Oh, yes, it's fantastic brown stuff. Now, I am, I am working in there at 4 o'clock in the morning on pots and pans. The steam is swirling past me. There's two other guys on pots and pans. And all we can hear outside of the hiss of the steam and the gurgle and the boiling of the water and the popping of the blisters on our hands from the soap is once in a while you hear the cook holler, Hey, for God's sakes, come on, some of them oatmeal pots! Well, the oatmeal pots, you see, are a special problem because on the bottom of every GI oatmeal pot, it, it, uh, the oatmeal burns. It burns on the bottom and makes a thick brown skin like rhinoceros hide. And you have to take that off, and it's about 19 feet deep. So you got your arm... It's gone. Well, now, remember, this is for 18 straight hours. 
18, I said. 18. Not one moment's rest. And once in a while, the guy next to me, <laughs> Torgerson, who was next to me, who had gotten uh, one of the highest grades ever recorded on the AGT, he was written up on a couple of camp papers, He would, his knees would buckle. Yeah, he kept fainting. He'd faint, and he'd go down under the under the great big rack that we'd put the pots on, and somebody would pull him up and hit him in the back. You know, come on, stand up. He would stand up there. The sweat is pouring down off my eyes. You know, so but you don't ex you do not question. I'm trying to tell you that after a certain time in the army, after six months of this, it is not a matter of griping about this. Just what you got it, and that's it. Your steam is. Turn on the hot water, more soap going, 18 more pans come in the back. You can hear them rolling them in. Clump, plump, and old rotten gravy, grease, salt pork, it's hard on it. Oh, it's awful, awful, you know, and, 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 and the oatmeal pots. Well, 18 straight hours. I am now in about my 16th and a half hour, and, you know, I've lost 30 pounds, doesn't make any difference. You get like a machine, I'm working away there, nothing, no question, I'm wearing my shorts right down, and all of a sudden the guy says, hey, you, the skinny guy, come on over here on the clipper, hey, Raph, come on, let's go, Mac, get on the clipper. Well, the clipper, in a, in, a, in, a, in a mess, a clipper is what is called the china clipper. Well, a china clipper is where they clean the, the dishes. Now, the, it, it's, a, it's a series of about three great big deep sinks filled with really scalding water. The officer comes in and puts it, make sure it's scalding. It is scalding. You can't stick anything in there or the, the flesh pops right off your hand. You know, it's scalding. It's boiling. Well, you take the pots, you take the cups, these big thick white cups, and you lower them down on two hooks down into the scalding water. And the steam is flying. You pull them out. You throw them into the next one, which is a slightly, just a little bit. The first one's got soap in it. The next one is just plain hot, boiling water. Ooh, and you pull it up. You throw it into the next one. Then you throw it over to this long rack, and you slide them. You see, just slide them down. That's the China Clipper. Well, I'm on the China Clipper, and I'm, I'm working like a fiend. It's getting hot. I know that I've only got about another hour. So at that moment... The guy says, hey, get them up on top of the shelf there, Mark. Well, I, I look up, and there's about five cups on top of the shelf that the cooks have been using. You know, there's empty coffee in there. And, I'm, I'm, of course, the sweat is pouring down off my eyes. My, my eyeballs are, are bopping out. And I reach up to get these cups. I reach over, and I grab for one of them. I pull it down, and as I do, I knock one of the cups off. It goes, punk, 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 crash. There is one moment of pause, like one beat, you know, pump. And this guy says, get up, man, and statement of charges. Hey, you statement of charges, Mac. Sweep up that cup, Dad. Come on, let's go. Statement of charges. Well, they're bringing me now, and I'm, I'm in the middle of the China Clipper. The steam is swirling. My eyes are sweating. My ears are hanging down. I'm you can't stop, you know, because they're yelling, hurry up with the cups, for God's sakes. And I'm signing a statement of charges with the other hand while I'm fishing down in the great big scalding pot for my hook. Well, a statement of charges means I'm going to pay nine cents. The day has cost me nine cents. That's where I am. I'm nine cents in the hole. I'm signing over one cup, nine cents, G-I-M-1, nine cents, uh, P-V-T-J, Shep, 16098946. Is that your right number, Mac? Give me a number. 16098946. They don't trust you for nothing. That's See, I'm telling you what a private is like. You are, even when you're, when you're being punished, they don't think you're the right guy. One six oh nine eight nine four six. Okay, all right. Give you a point. One to comedy, comedy K. All right, Mac. Watch them cups. 
Well, Don, I'm going into the cups again. Steam flying. Well, all right, you got the picture. Now, it is total degradation. Total degradation. And you, I have learned to accept it. Then, after we have left this scene, I go out on maneuvers where for six straight weeks, due to a particular thing that had to do with a flood and several other things, we have only salt pork to eat. Three guys in my company die of Rocky Mountain spotted fever. One guy dies of pneumonia. One guy gets run over by a jeep in the dark when he was taking his, his stolen two hours of sleep. He hadn't slept for three days. And 18 guys in the next company were drowned in the river. Well, we just kept right on going. Yeah, their, their truck went down into the Arkansas River. That's another story. But you kind of get so sure, except you know, one guy, Oh, by the way, a guy down in M Company hung himself one morning. So we're going along, you know, flubbing Well, <laughs> I, the next thing I know, I am assigned to one of the Army schools in Chicago, of all places. Now, I'm assigned to this school, which is in a big building. Remember what I've come out of. I'm assigned to this school, which is in a big building on Ohio Street, overlooking Lake Michigan. You can look right down and see the pier. And there it is down there, the, you know, the Navy pier is down there. And I'm, I, you, have you, you know these, you guys are radio men, you know these rotten little radio schools you see advertised on the last page of the magazine where the guy's pointing out at you, aren't big money in the radio business? Yes, in your spare time you can learn the intricacies of television and radio. How to repair radios, how to repair TV, and then there's these little smudgy pictures. J.D. of Hattiesburg, Mississippi earns up to $30 a month in his spare time. Up $30 a month in my spare time, thank God for your course. I learned how to fix super heterodyne receivers, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Well, the Army had taken over for the real privates of the world that kind of school. And I am assigned to one of these hell holes. Their equipment dates from the late fall of 1923. They have all these little wooden benches where we're all, there are 18,000 guys in a room built for 14 people. And we, you, the, the food, indescribable. They had taken this place over, and they were just taking the government down the line. And we would, we would all line up about, about every six hours. They would line us all up, and they would throw this stuff in our mess kit. Glop, glop, glop. And we're all walking, each guy with his old rotten bolt almost under him, you know, glop, glop. And you're eating the slop. All right, all you guys, line up, get back right now. We're going to have, let's go, on the ball. We'd go in, and back we go, and we're bugging the equipment. Oh, it was terrible, terrible. And it's 110 degrees in this because the place is, a, it's a fire trap. We are learning nothing, but we are working 30 hours a, a day. Believe me, they are getting us up at, at 4 o'clock in the morning in our house. All right, you guys, we're going to run through some Kirchhoff's Law. Some Kirchhoff's Law experiments. Quick now, let's go. One, two, three. On you guys on the left. Hop, hop. Well, we're, we're, we're from the very right down, and all where we're doing math, we're doing everything. We're working 19, 20 hours a day. Well, directly across, remember, all privates. And we didn't think anything about this. This is our life, you know, our world. And between messing around with the rotten equipment, we are in there on pots and pans again. See, <laughs> I mean, there's just no... Because who was serving the Giants? Well, we were, you know. Between, between working out 4,000 problems of Kirchhoff's Law, you've got to go in and make the SOS, you know. So we're doing... Oh, boy. Well, and, and, and now the thing you've got to remember, what was this leading to, gentlemen? What was all of it leading to? Well, we knew what it was leading to. The, the reports were filtering back. Did you hear what happened to Company D? The guys are shipped out. There's only seven of them left. 
And for God's sakes, 28 of them got it in five minutes on Sicily. You see, because there's, a, there's about a 900% casualty rate among signal corps men, at least, and no rank. Nobody had risen to, in, to, to man's knowledge above the rank of T5 in 17 consecutive seasons in the signal corps. So all it was, we were preparing to go into...